and how he named the cars S, E, and X, and Y, then the E is a three for the Model 3, and that's because it spells sexy, and that that's funny. Like, I can't tell how much of that is, like, is he really Beavis and Butthead, or is he just <laughs> pretending to be Beavis and Butthead? Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech and stuff on the Half Caucasian podcast. So, Jonathan, I mean, you've put together a ridiculously long list of things we could talk about, but um, I I want to start with a wild card. Okay, fair. You know the Daniel Suarez book, Kill Decision? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's got drones in it or something, but... I don't like that book as much as the Daniel Suarez sci-fi novel Demon. I've still not read Demon. So, spoilers. In Demon, <laughs> there is <laughs> a, a kind of vehicle. You know that these aren't just spoilers for me, right? They're spoilers potentially <laughs> for an entire audience of people who would find joy from that book. But <laughs> You mean the Daniel Suarez dystopian sort of set in the future, but it was written maybe even 20 years ago, novel Demon, and the sequel to Demon, Freedom. Where are you going with this? Yeah, so there's um, <laughs> there's um, a vehicle in that book called a Razorback, and I think it's what you're thinking of when you talk about the Boston Robotics Digidog. So tell me about the Boston Robotics Digidog. A few interesting things have happened, right? Did you see, um, was it Christmas and New Year's, where... Boston Dynamics did a kind of fun dance with all their different collection of incredible robots. And you've probably seen a lot of reviews of Spot, the dog or the robot, which can open doors and it can carry objects and it can do all sorts of interesting things. There was a hostage situation where it was spotted being sent in to negotiate as a human proxy, basically. So this is is the four-legged robot dog from Boston Dynamics that was at one point owned by Google Alphabet mm-hmm. and then got spun out again, having been acquired. Can't remember who they sold it back to. It's a terrifying sort of drone dog-shaped robot thing that is, I'm going to say, about half the height of a human and it moves in a terrifying way and it can it can dance if you want to make it sort of look endearing, but it, it's still terrifying. And when you say it got sent into a hostage situation, what you're saying is that they used it as a mic and speaker, Yeah, presumably. and cameras, basically. Okay. So remote operated it in, in the situation in the Bronx. And that went viral. And then it's prompted some interesting things. So you probably also noticed in the recent SpaceX landing crash, Spot the Dog was also spotted. Oh, no way. Yeah, doing a recce, essentially, before any people went. Probably for safety, but also because of all its sensors and surveillance and being able to be completely remotely operated in that way. So now one of New York City Council members, Ben Kalos, is proposing the nation's first law banning police from owning and operating robots armed with weapons, which is what prompted me to think of Daniel Suarez's kill decision, which is all around AI swarms of military-enabled robots. And it got me thinking because there's this really funny... there's interesting dystopian views of all of this stuff that's happening so if you watched black mirror you may have seen that 
kind of haunting episode that doesn't have much of a plot, but it's basically dystopian future where all of humans are running away from these things that look remarkably similar to the Boston Dynamics spot. Yeah, and they're solar powered. And I saw this article from Vox, which was how to defeat a Boston Dynamics robot in Mortal Kombat, where they've taken the user manual, gone through all the different parts of how it's assembled and 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 basically shown that if you flip it on its back somehow and pin it you can basically yank out its battery to to fully disable it yeah i mean i am completely not qualified to speak about <laughs> this terrifying thing i would have thought that if it's being operated well when you try and grab it it's gonna it can kick its legs properly and those are real powerful kickers on its legs and um it'll probably do you an injury before you can get it down on the ground, pin it, and then rip out the lithium-ion heart. Wow. I mean, if you weren't absolutely terrified before, you probably are now. It's interesting, some people have compared it in that Vice article to the game that I'm playing at the moment, Horizon Zero Dawn, where you essentially have to battle all these different sentient machines, and they have specific weaknesses. And I just thought, oh God, we're actually having that conversation. What's the specific weakness of Boston Robotics Spot Dog? In the rare event that it decides it's not going to comply. So should we be legislating for this sort of thing? So that so that the proposal is that the police should not be able to control an armed robot. It's weird. It's a, it's a very US-centric fear because of how just militarized their police is. Yeah, I mean there's loads of there's loads of outcomes that could happen. I mean I don't think you can legislate for everything. Last week you were saying that in GameStop something dramatic was going to happen this week because the the shit was going to hit the fan, basically. They were going to have to run up against reality. What happened in the earnings call? As I was looking into this, every day has been just a new weird revelation of behaviour, as is so often the case with this, this endless story. Last week, we just discussed that reality would soon kick in because this was the first earnings call since it became a meme stock. And just so much attention has been paid to this relatively obscure, tiny company. They had an earnings call, which was so oversubscribed that people just couldn't join, which which has never actually happened in the gaming industry, according to IGN. That just doesn't, people don't, people don't follow it that closely. So hugely oversubscribed. Normally an earnings call will go anywhere up to sort of an hour. They'll do some announcements of how they've performed that quarter. They'll do a Q&A. They'll do some forward-looking guidance. They did like none of that. They did an announcement of how they'd performed that quarter, and after 20 minutes, they just cut it off. <laughs> they just stopped. So they announced some relatively good news around sort of e-commerce sales up 175%. They didn't hit all the analyst targets. But I mean, generally good news. If it was just a regular company, you'd think, oh, well, they're, they've done okay after the pandemic. It's not not all bad news. People didn't like it. Well, the market didn't like it. They, went, they just plummeted 30-something percent. And it was really funny because... For something that would normally have just gone under the radar, they did a 20-minute earnings call. And then Jim Cramer, the one with all the sound effects on CNBC, did a 10-minute analysis of the 20 minutes <laughs> with all, all his sound effects. Meanwhile, a lot of analysts downgraded them from their absurd valuation, <laughs> which is it's comedy. But then Zach's equity research upgraded them to a buy on the basis of, essentially, momentum, ignoring where the price levels are on the valuation, they actually had <laughs> results that were positive and therefore positive trend for the stock. So I was I was expecting to enter this conversation today with, well, reality caught up with them. And 
and they're down 30 odd percent. And then yesterday happened where they bounced <laughs> 50, I want to say like 50%. Today they went up another 30 and then kind of balanced out around even for the day. I'll let you digest on that. Well, the Business Insider headline, I think, puts it well. GameStop stock price is almost six times more volatile than Bitcoin. Bitcoin, the thing so volatile, the top three things Jerome Powell says about Bitcoin. The third one is it's just so volatile to be any form of normal asset. So uh, six times more volatile than that. <laughs> should regulate it. Okay, well, it's start of the week at 194, maybe 200. End of the week, about 179. So sort of even Stevens, really. In the middle, it in the middle it crashed out. It really feels like all the fundamentals have been just squeezed out of GameStop through it being a meme, through billionaires getting involved and, and kind of like pumping it from to the point now where it's trading a bit like a shitcoin in in the crypto world. It's like a Doge type thing. It has no there's no correlation to any real world value at this point. It's just is is it a good area to buy and and where is the support levels i mean i hear you and <laughs> that's not uh i'm not trying to say it's a good buy just to, just to clarify I mean, it sounds like you're singing its praises even though it sounds a bit like gambling and normally people who don't go in for gambling wouldn't get into gamestop and they wouldn't get into gamestop at 19 dollars. but apparently <laughs> apparently there is a large fund worth um 100 billion that did get into GameStop at $19 last quarter. Who's that? This is, see, GameStop is the gift that keeps giving. You wouldn't have heard about this were it not for the joys of GameStop. So the Mormon Church have this secretive $100 billion fund that I'd never heard of, but recently they trimmed their technology bets. They quadrupled their stake in Tesla. And weirdly enough, they added GameStop to their portfolio, which I thought was just... Yeah, why not? So that fund is as big as SoftBank, Vision Fund, number one. When they got into Tesla last quarter, I wonder at what point in the quarter, because they, they could still have doubled initially and then kind of 50% upped, uh, depending on when they got in. So apparently their position surged in value by about 550% to $330 million as of December 31st. Yeah, but that's that's... I think including the top up of buying buying additional shares. So I'm a little bit unclear. This is probably all in the the filing, the SEC filing. Yeah, and they they snapped up forty six thousand GameStop shares for less than nineteen dollars last quarter. Which means what? Which means that they they will have been. I'm struggling to say the following sentence. Does that mean that they will have been reading Wall Street bets? <laughs> I mean, or they dislike the stock. I don't know. Anyway, I'm we done. now know we now know about them. They're called Ensign Peak Advisors. Yeah, do you know why? No. Ensign Peak was one of the it's in Salt Lake. It's one of the sort of hills that oh. the founder of the Mormon Church climbed. Oh no way. Yeah, true story. Fun fact. So I guess you've you've listed a lot of things that you want to talk about. To be honest, the the thing that I actually really wanted to talk about, but I haven't managed to dig into the detail, was Wikipedia for Enterprise. So I find that really interesting. As a yeah, I know nothing concept. about Wikipedia for Enterprise. So 
I didn't realize that, you know, when you go to Google and you type in something that has a little search popper that's often filled by information from Wikipedia. The one box. The way they get that is either th- either through the monthly, or is it fortnightly, Wikipedia data dumps that they freely make available to the public, or through essentially screen scraping yeah, Wikipedia's surely. site. Yeah, that's what I'd have assumed. Which is, which is kind of mental when you think about it. That's how all the data gets into Google, by crawling and scraping. So the, the Yelp lawsuit against Google was that Yelp's primary content, its user-generated content, but what they thought of as their own property, was the reviews. And those reviews were being originally used to kind of kickstart Google's own efforts in the space by being sort of scraped and then backfilled in. So what Wikipedia have said is, enough of that, we're a not-for-profit. How about we make an enterprise API where you just make a call against that API, tell us what information you need, and we'll provide it. And it's a paid enterprise-grade API so that they don't need to go to the lengths of basically scraping the world's encyclopedia and essentially re-rendering it as Google content in a search, which is interesting as a revenue stream for Wikipedia. Opens up a whole load of interesting ways that they could become tied to corporate interests in a way that previously they've been somewhat immune to. They just have that banner and ask you for donations every year. More than every year. It feels like it comes around very frequently. So this enterprise API, what else could it be used for apart from that use case? What do you have in mind? I just don't think there is one. And let me ask another question, because this is an echo of the Australia news meets Google and Facebook story. When you see that Wikipedia text, the snippet, it's three or four lines deep in a one box. How many times out of 10 do you then click through to get to the whole article? Or are you sated? Is that enough? I often click through to get through to the Wikipedia page. For me, on any new subject, the Wikipedia explanation, be it a company, a principle in economics the governance of a nation, anything. The Wikipedia description, the explanation, is invariably the clearest. If I have only two minutes to understand a topic, it can be as complicated as quantum physics. The Wikipedia explanation does it. It's absolutely fantastic. It's invaluable. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be certain that the fact of Google using that, or using three or four lines of it, and therefore deriving some value, means that they should be paying for it. Because the reciprocity here is that Google's also invariably sending the person who asked to Wikipedia afterwards. The link to Wikipedia is immediately after the snippet. A lot of users know how to get more content, more of the same, and a lot of them click through. So there's a bit of give and take there. I agree. I think that's quite a fair analysis. But even so, they're creating an enterprise API. Well, the claim is then, surely what they're saying here is, even though this is a free public resource at the point of use, we know you're wealthy, so you should pay us for it. But I thought Wikipedia was more like the commons, like a true public good that we'd all taken part in building. I mean, some of the people who helped to build it will have been Google engineers on company time, I would have hoped. Is that naive? No, I think that's fair. I mean, is it, well, I mean, the, the extension of that is to say, and therefore, can't we all just access it in perpetuity for, not if not for free, for occasional donations? So according to this article from The Verge, you can still, companies can still use the existing API for free. They're not, they're not going to prevent that, but they're building an enterprise grade API to give 
to deliver data faster and format it specifically to the needs of who's requesting it. Which I think if you think about, say you Google a celebrity, you'll often get the one box will be, you know, a picture pulled from Wikipedia. It'll be their name, maybe their age, date of birth, whatever. I'm assuming Google has to reassemble all of the, the data structure based on what it's scraped. It would be a lot easier if it could just ask Wikipedia specifically for what it's looking for. And then for the links that Wikipedia's based on, you know, the deep linking between all the different ones. I'm sure there's some value there, whether they can really make it work and whether Google will be bothered to pay. I don't know. It's happening and it's interesting. I think that when you search on a celebrity, the images come from the the knowledge graph. I think that the only... I don't think the knowledge panel is wholesale pulled from Wikipedia. I think the images come from one source, the siblings from another the height and the born data from another source. I think Google's knowledge graph is now a separate thing. Now, how did they build that up? How did they amass it? By crawling, by scraping, by copying, by pasting. But but now it's there. It's quite hard to disaggregate who it got, who it came from. Yeah, it's weird. So I just typed in Tom Hanks mm-hmm. and you get like the Wikipedia description of him. You get upcoming movie, Elvis which doesn't seem to be pulled from Wikipedia, but yeah, maybe. With, with a link to IMDb. Probably. Yeah. No, with a link to their own search. Yeah, okay, basically. So, their graph. so the blue which, link yeah. is, is just another Google search. And then date of birth, location of birth, which seems to correspond directly to what's on Wikipedia. You're right. It's, it's, a, it's a strange graph that's assembled from multiple sources. It just seems like a lot of the sources are probably Wikipedia. And interestingly, are, are, are scraped in a kind of, uh, in a way that would make sense for other websites, but maybe doesn't now make sense for Wikipedia, given it is essentially the commons, like you said. It's a structured resource of encyclopedic knowledge. Maybe it just should have an API and you should just retrieve information from it. And if you're an enterprise, you're not a person, realistically. So, uh, so pay up because you can afford to and you should be contributing. I think that would be the counter to what I was saying earlier. I'm going to go into what I'm going to call a sort of um, quick fire round. Okay. It's it's not going to work. Are you ready? So Nintendo Switch update is going to use the NVIDIA GPU. Are you excited? Are you going to upgrade? I think the Switch update, the one you're talking about, is the one for, like, it's a proper Switch. It's not a Switch Lite. Oh, is yours a Switch Lite? Yeah, mine is a Switch Lite. And so uh, the sw- the full Switch, the proper Switch with the detachable controllers, and this this upcoming one for the for the holiday season, it's going to be, it's diagonally one and a half inches bigger screen. It's an OLED screen. So yes, that's good. But um, it might still run at 700 DPI in the handheld version when you're not plugging it in. So there might actually be no, for battery life reasons, so there might be no real reason to, to switch to that. Pun intended. Have you signed up for the uh, Deliveroo IPO? I have. I was wondering, have you? So the correct answer is don't do it. The, a judge has granted class action status to MacBook butterfly keyboards. Okay, this we definitely this isn't working. Too, too can fast? I, can I? Can I? Ask too you, fast for you. Too fast for you. I'm going to ask you a serious question, something that you know a lot about, and that I have naively been kind of nodding along when you've been talking about it but not paying attention and recently i started paying attention 
answer this. Are Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and ASML the most important companies that no one's ever heard of? I'm glad you asked that question. When The Economist wrote an article, not the Christmas just gone, but last Christmas before that, so Christmas of 2019, in their bumper edition two-week special about a visit to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company in Taiwan, it was a real eye-opener because, as well as describing them as the very apex of a supply chain pyramid, requiring incredible purity of silicon from sand, requiring a precision in terms of wafer engraving, and, and tiny sort of tiny etching on on silicon that hadn't yet hadn't previously been seen in terms of human civilization when they described that i was like huh and it sort of sat with me for about six months and then six months later i invested in the company and it was less than six months it was it was maybe four months and it was during the pandemic because it occurred to me that as the pandemic through economic and social life into disarray it was also kind of throwing into disarray the hardest parts of our civilization so if you think about what it takes to build global supply chains and to do difficult things like etching four nanometer systems on chips then you realize it's it's hard at every level it's technically difficult it's an organizational challenge and it's a societal kind of achievement to get there so yes, TSMC is incredibly valuable. And you've sort of seen how it's been hard to build cars when the, the, the I want to say EMU chips, the EMC chips, the chips that control each individual device driver within the car, which are kind of relatively basic hardware, when those have uh, got bottlenecks in their supply chain. And then, well, we've had to stop entire car production lines I mean, that's just one knock-on effect of a few more basic manufacturers seeing some supply chain difficulties. What Taiwan Semiconductor is doing is so far ahead of its field. Like, Intel is already three generations behind them in chip manufacture. And it takes quite a lot to catch up because there's things like institutional learning. And there's things like, in the fab, the equipment you need like each item of manufacturing machinery costs tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to actually install. It's it's a good defensive moat. So that's that. And then the one in the Netherlands also invested in them. I know less about them, but you know, still kind of they they occupy a similar position. Um, in general, my rule for this sort of thing is really basic, and sounds really strange. So in the world, people get paid for doing magic. Can you make a car drive itself? Oh, magic. How did you do that? You're a wizard. Well done. Yeah, the stuff that used to be magic and now is not as magic, like you can produce sheets and sheets of shiny foil really thin, or you can make a burger that tastes the same every time. That stuff, it used to be magic. Now people are less wowed by it. Its value drops. But uh, integrating hardware and software into a user experience, quite difficult in a phone. We keep paying Apple money, making an incredibly small silicon chip that doesn't use that much energy. Absolutely magic. Very difficult to do it. Uh, looks like voodoo. Will be worth a lot of money. Is is worth a lot of money. I think, I think they're now incredibly valuable. I don't know what you got in that, but this. So TSMC, 
now controls more than half the world's market for made-to-order chips. So they're essentially the world's fabricator of all silicon chips, whether it's Apple, whether it's the stuff that Qualcomm uses that's in a lot of your phones, whether it's even Intel from 2023 are going to start using them to fabricate their own because they just can't keep up. Like you were saying, I didn't realize just how capital intensive that business is and how China are really far behind. The US is quite strong in terms of the, the architectures, but really, you know, really weak in terms of the actual fabrication. Samsung are close, but a tiny part of the market share. And yeah, TSMC are essentially a monopoly, but a monopoly not through nefarious means, but because everyone who couldn't stump up the phenomenal capital investment that it takes to manufacture a slightly smaller, go from like whatever it was, 14 nanometers, and they're now down to what they're looking at, three nanometer chips. Every generation is millions and is hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. I hadn't appreciated that or the, you know, rare silicon that they use. And in particular, the reason ASML from the company from the Netherlands is so interesting is they're the only company that makes the high-end extreme ultraviolet machines that you need to do uh, lithography, which is the etching of the, 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 the silicon, basically. They're the only ones that can make that machine in the world. They make 25 machines a year. That's their whole business. TSMC buys up more than half of them, and each machine is over $130 million. And they essentially have a machine that fires, I'm going to describe it in stupid terms, it fires a laser of extreme ultraviolet light at a drop of tin that then turns into plasma that's then bounced around through these mirrors and lenses and focused just so that you can etch your your three nanometer, four nanometer, I think they're on um, silicon chips. It, it cannot be done by any other company anywhere else in the world, which is why those two companies, I think, are the most important companies that no one's ever heard of. If they went under for some reason, everything would stop working. Every single device, high-end device that uses artificial intelligence, image signal processing in your smartphone camera, your latest MacBook stuff, all of all of it comes from those companies, which is why the computer chip shortage that we're currently going through has really, I've started paying attention to those companies and realized that firstly, it is just complete magic what they're doing, but also they are so far ahead in terms of time and capital that you have to invest into it. I just don't, it's going to take nation state investment to catch up. So the US are investing hundreds of billions, China investing hundreds of billions just to try and compete with Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the pinnacles of human civilization. Like it's it's one of, right? That along with loads of other stuff like ballet and messenger rna stuff whatever you whatever you want in in multiple fields and in in the field of shining really bright light through a tiny hole at a piece of metal in order to make a very very tiny groove to later on send some electricity down that groove yeah they're really at the top of their game but it's also human society human civilization wise we got to a point and if another pandemic comes and knocks us out the test of whether we whether we got knocked back or not, one of the indicators would be, all right, are those two companies still both in operation, one enabling the other to do its thing? I got in, incidentally, um, half the present price for both of them. A thing to note about TSM is that the US government's leading 
leaning on Taiwan Semiconductor to try make sure that they they set up another base on US mainland because Taiwan occupies a difficult position geopolitically and you know China could do a number of things and it's strategically as you've said it's of immense strategic value um I'm going to give you a chance to ask me about delivery. So you you've gone for the IPO. Um, do you want me do you want to tell me why you think it's a good bet? This is off the back of your previous successes in Mondo Monzo crowdfunding and Podpoint through crowdfunding. Nice delivery is different. I feel like it's a little bit of a punt. It they're not allowing people to invest crazy amounts. In fact, the odds are it'll be a very small amount, a small investment if it's oversubscribed, but they're giving their customers early access before it IPOs, which is quite interesting. Pre-pandemic, I probably would have said, mm, not really the company that I use for, we you know we, we didn't order out as much food as we're doing now. We're just ordering out a lot more. And I think now that restaurants in particular have, the ones that have survived have definitely realized that there's an additional there's a separate business model. There's the patrons who come in into your restaurant and actually will pay for your services, will buy the goods there that are cooked for them and they'll, you know, have an experience with you. And there's a separate audience that may never go to your restaurant. You know, um, our previous, not a sponsor, that pizzeria, I've never been to their restaurant. You know, Laura Di Napoli just exists as a terrible website, but that makes great pizza through delivery. Um, and that may, that will probably remain the case. And delivery is the only one that's really servicing that channel. They're not going on Just Eat or anything else. They're, it's a kind of delivery type model. And I wonder whether that's going to be something that post-pandemic is a behavior that we keep. Mm. That delivery can continue to capitalize on. Not just the restaurants, but everything. Delivering your groceries, delivering you know, things that you don't want to go out and get. They will provide that, that leg. What's your reason for not liking them? Or maybe for not investing? in them it's not a space i know that much about but i i do know it's very competitive and without a doubt you're going to do better i think if you're uber eats because you already have people in your app because they were in your app when they're on their journey home and they can repurpose some of their drivers and pay them less because they're doing the other thing already so you can kind of keep them employed there's the the supposed kind of virtual cycle or, or flywheel drawn on the back of a napkin by david Sachs at the beginning of uber shows that you know you do more pickups and drop-offs or and that could be food or people and then you could lower the cost per pickup or drop-off and then customers are also seeing shorter wait times so they're happier and that is the true supposed defensibility of this model that's the true defensive mode um Deliveries in 12 markets. Just Eat is in a lot of markets and has 10 times more customers, but I think its valuation is about the same. I can't remember if it's uh, it, it's a bit higher, but it's not that much higher. Deliveroo talk about having an amazing technical stack, but every time I've used their app, it's forgotten where my home is. And they've got a strange relationship with restaurants. So they have been able to kind of carve out a higher end niche, but they've also had to go after some restaurants that don't have accurate location update information. I don't quite know why that user experience is two tiers. So there are some restaurants where when you order from it, it says 
map indicator line cross through it and you'll have a different experience when you when you order from that i don't completely understand things like why is the just eat business model so different the the drivers are employed by the restaurant rather than the platform in the case of just eat it's more a facilitation of the the delivery model that already pre-existed whereas delivery is like a platform that's laid over the top and i think as a result you're going to see some kind of regulatory challenge like the thing that happened with uber mm, quite possibly last week where the drivers were reclassified as workers and therefore required to have holiday pay and um, pensions and sick sick pay and so on that is the big risk i've seen Which that could, risk for yeah for delivery so definitely people are sort of flagging that up but uh yeah, I don't know. I think the, the one worry that people do flag, which is that that spike of demand during the pandemic is going to go away. Uh, that worry, I think to some extent it's overblown. I think we have fundamentally changed our lifestyles and behaviours. And I think you're right. Restaurants have recognised that there are two, there are at least two different types of custom. And that's, you know, at its most extreme, manifest in the dark kitchen, where the restaurant sets up a windowless container, shipping container, or porter cabin kitchen in a parking lot closer to where you live so that you can get the same type of food sent to you from the same brand in an utterly windowless, customerless experience. Hopefully with still having food inspectors visiting. Yeah, not for me. Pass. Fair enough. Like I said, I think this is going to be one of those where... Oh, oh! in, in its favour, Amazon's backing it and will continue to back it. So you can see the market dynamics play out, right? So yeah. it's it's great that Mark, that Amazon has... And it, it's interesting to note that Amazon believes that strategically they should put a, a, like a flag in the ground here. And they'll probably be coming back to revisit that because of how important logistics is to Amazon. So, you know, they they will not forsake this ground easily. And that's important to note. So in the 12 markets where they are in, um, th that might become a very vicious battle. And that's also the difference with delivery versus competitors like Just Eat. Delivery aren't tied to food delivery um, in the same way that other restaurant platforms might be. In a similar way to, to Uber, I guess. Yeah, but you don't want to get into that space because then you've got things like GoPuff that are valued at $2 billion and you know the grocery delivery space is or the you know the less than 30 minutes delivery space it's just become so intensely competitive now oh the margins are horrific right that's really not a good space to limit yourself to but like you said the amazon angle the i just say a change of behavior that i think we'll, we'll probably see from the pandemic it could be interesting to see where it plays out it's no tsmc I think it's, it's what we'll probably say. <laughs> I think you're going to surprise me now because I have no idea what's coming. So I have a question for you. Jonathan, who is our non-sponsor of the week? We have a really good non-sponsor this week. So if we rewind back to that point when Jen and I were planning the wedding and I kind of messaged you a picture of some kind of beige chinos that I wanted you and all the groomsmen to wear... For the tea ceremony part of the wedding for those chinos i was looking for someone that made clothes that was just maybe a bit more ethical it seemed to be the stance that i think was achievable and i was thinking okay let's google it and i found this company called monkey jeans 
which is M-O-N-K-E-E-G-E-N-E-S, monkey genes, based in the UK, that source organic, sustainable, GOTS compliant textiles and that pay all their factories a living wage and, and try and like do all the ethical things right. They don't make too much of a song and dance about it, but they do the things right. I ordered those chinos and I love them. They're really, really comfortable. And I was super surprised. I'm not like a clothes person by, by any stretch of the imagination. You know this. Then I, I ordered Joseph a pair, future brother-in-law. He being super fit, needed a different size. So he sent them back for an exchange. And then the pandemic hit, lockdown, just complete silence. <laughs> like who knows if they reached the warehouse. So I chased up and I was um, just emailing them through the endless lockdowns that we had in the UK. And eventually... I'd, I'd almost written it off. I was like, you know what? They they just might not have come out of this lockdown. And I got this lovely reply that was saying, thanks so much for, for waiting. We're back up and running. Our sincerest apologies. We were affected. Our warehouse was closed. Our staff, we had to stop everything for health and safety, but we're back. We'll process your refund. And here's a discount for your next purchase there. And it was really, it was like an actual person, not just a weird customer experience. So I've continued to get some stuff from there, knowing that at least it's ethically sourced, it's environmentally friendly, and they pay their factories a fair wage, and they're just great quality. And does that reflect in the price, or how? what's the pricing like? Pricing's reasonable. I mean, it's not, you know, high street fast fashion, but it's like between 50 and 70 pounds per pair of chinos or jeans. They do shorts. They do a range of other things. So anyway, I was intrigued by this because I... I Good customer service from an ethical brand is kind of just something to just smile about. Anyway, I contacted uh, the good people at Monkey Jeans and they're not running any promotions or sales at the moment, but they said that we could have a unique discount code for our listeners. If they want 10% off Monkey Jeans, you can go to their website and you can type in HCPOD10, that's HCPOD10, and you'll get 10% off anything you buy from them which is really nice it's really nice of them to just create a unique <laughs> discount code just for our listeners they're still small they're a uk company they have all the right ethical chops and they make really good products so i figured yeah why not well thank you very much to our non-sponsor of the week thank you monkey jeans and uh amazing it feels like it's about time for the segment that we call this week in crypto can I start? Yeah. There's there's only one topic that I want to talk about. I know you've got a few. You can now buy a Tesla with Bitcoin in the US and soon coming to us the world. Is that true as of today? That's true as of today in the US. Do they say, like, send it to this wallet address? How does it even work? No idea. All I know that's really exciting is... Tesla are using their own internal Bitcoin nodes. They're hosting Bitcoin nodes. They're part of the network. They're not just outsourcing this to some random third party and just, just for the sake of it. They're actually hosting and operating their own Bitcoin nodes. Any Bitcoin paid to Tesla will be retained as Bitcoin and not converted back into US dollars. Seems like they're in it for the long run. So yeah. Um, it says that as I go through the, the checkout flow, if I see a Bitcoin symbol next to the order button, then that's eligible to be bought with Bitcoin and they'll give me the uh, the Bitcoin wallet address in both a alphanumeric code format and a QR code. 
that I could enter into my Bitcoin wallet. And uh, that's how that's how it works. So uh, their chief of coin and also their um, techno king have techno really doubled king. down on uh, they've really doubled down on Bitcoin, haven't they? Did you see that Elon tweeted uh, earlier today that he well it was in response to someone complimenting full self full self driving and saying how good it was. What did he say? He said, "Yeah, I think there's a good chance that Tesla could be. There's a greater than zero percent chance that Tesla could be the biggest company in the world." And then he followed up with another tweet, which he then deleted afterwards. The second tweet said, "Probably in the next few months." Okay, and that what's on the horizon that, oh, that they're probably, basing that on? I, well, I mean, he's saying in the context of the beta of full soft driving. Ah, uh, okay. So the self-driving uh, cars that I've been waiting think for of, for a think while. Of a fleet of a million robo taxis. The fleet that was yeah arriving in twenty nineteen, and twenty seventeen. <laughs> but but he might be saying it because of because of something that the um, the king of coin told him, the chief coin officer. Uh, you know, it might be just because of the value of Bitcoin going up and the fact that they are taking payments in Bitcoin. So here's what I find absolutely absurd about Elon Musk. He he plays dumb when it comes to Bitcoin in every possible scenario. He's kind of, oh, I'm not so sure about Bitcoin. I haven't been paying attention to Bitcoin. I don't own any Bitcoin. All of this stuff. And then he says, oh, it's a Tesla board decision to get into Bitcoin. It's not my decision. And, and I don't know. Everyone seems to, of all the crazy that he does on Twitter, everyone seems to just kind of be trying to convince him about Bitcoin. And he's slowly just like dropping all these hints. But then... I don't know, call me crazy, but this is the guy that in 1999 founded X.com, a platform, the precursor to PayPal, that was designed to replace the existing financial system, right? That was his whole mission, living off a dollar a day in New York City, developing this platform as a software engineer. If anyone knows about Bitcoin when it came into existence, it's got to be Elon Musk. I mean, I'd be amazed that he let that whole movement pass him by having been so heavily invested in shaking up the financial system. And then when something actually is spawned out of thin air that, that, that does it, he just has no clue about it and, aim, and pretends to be an idiot. Well, he pretends to be much more into Do- Dogecoin. <laughs> but th- so this is what I find so fascinating about him, because he's... I don't know which parts are a ruse, right? So, you know, his whole thing about 420, he's like, when he said that... He thought it was going to take Tesla back private again for 420 a share and he'd got it already lined up. And like how he thinks the number 69 is really funny and how he named the cars S, E and X and Y. But then the E is a three for the Model 3 and that's because it spells sexy and that that's funny. Like I can't tell how much of that is like, is he really Beavis and Butthead? Or is he just <laughs> pretending to be Beavis and Butthead? I don't know. All I know is that he he's underplaying his awareness and involvement in the crypto space massively. When he had to be, to be coached before. through how an enterprise buys Bitcoin by the CEO of um, MicroStrategy. MicroStrategy, publicly coached through Twitter. I mean, what was really going on there? I mean, he did actually need advice on how to do it because it was difficult because it's an enterprise purchase. True. There's probably some el- elements of that that the Michael Saylor's input would have been really valuable. I just find it really funny that he 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 pretends to know so little about Bitcoin and the crypto space when he obviously knows so much more. 
this is the guy that knew nothing about rockets and then taught himself rocket science. <laughs> like the classic trope of being a genius. He went from knowing about finance, knowing about software engineering, and then was like, oh, I want to make, I think I want to get to Mars. I better go learn this whole rocket science thing. That'll be easy. And then goes full on SpaceX. So for him not to comprehend and understand Bitcoin and decentralized finance and a space which he was very invested in shaking up with X.com that became Con Confinity or something and then became PayPal with Peter Thiel. If he doesn't know everything around the history of Bitcoin, I'd be amazed. I think he's just playing a fool. Elon is a complex fellow, one who's unlikely to take a wife. So this week, Crypto.com opened something completely new. So they, they've actually gone from being a centralized exchange to being a decentralized part of They've, they've gone from crypto.com to crypto.org. They launched a, a DeFi wallet. And then they've said that all of the CRO tokens that used to exist, the moment you try and move them, they'll be somehow transmuted into this new CRO.org token that is no longer ERC20. And that, I guess, no longer uses Ethereum gas fees and is dependent on that slow and expensive network and can never be stopped because it's kind of a decentralized thing now and and meanwhile the value of CRO just sort of hung in there at 20 didn't go up didn't go down this all happened on Thursday do I need to do anything you don't need to do anything lovely there are no actions no actions on this meeting are they still crypto.com or are they are they now officially crypto.org or is that a separate completely independent entity that the SEC will have to investigate completely and <laughs> And when you visit it, will there be like a thing across the top that says, from Jimmy Wales, that says, we try not to ask you. I'm going to keep this short. Oh, that'd be classic. It'd be really funny if it just has a QR code for donations in Bitcoin, though. <laughs> that, that's all I want to say about that. I don't think you've got anything to say. I do want to ask you about um, something in particular that happened this week to do with a funny little coin called Filecoin. So we talked about Filecoin last week and... We caused this. I imagine, yeah, I imagine it was probably our, our listenership that then they went out and out. purchased. Yeah. Because since we talked about it, it went up quite a lot, didn't it? It was, this time last week, it was at 80, I want to say like 88. It's now at $115. Okay, so 40% 40, 40 up. So what will have driven that? Because what you were saying, I mean, if we remind ourselves, you were trying to explain yourself at that point why it had gone up 80%. Yeah. And the best you could come up with was that an obscure Chinese photo sharing site was using actual Filecoin for the intent which Filecoin had been designed for, which was a distributed version of S3, Amazon's S3. And, and the much smaller reason of Grayscale adding it as an investment asset for their institutional investors either of which could have pushed it up previously. This latest movement is, is, is bizarre. But I think there is a, there's an interesting trend that I've seen, you know, ignoring just stupid price speculation, which is too easy to just end up focusing on. I do feel like the infrastructure, the Web3 stack is starting to get a bit more noticed. It's gone from being kind of like Bitcoin, various forms of things that try and do currency. Then we went through okay, we're going to go through the smart contract platforms of Ethereum and 
Cardano and Polkadot and all these other ones that are just doing smart contracts. And meanwhile, like the, the rest of the, if you think about if you were replacing your, your typical cloud infrastructure stack, all of the other stuff that does, you know, your content delivery network, your file storage, your, you know, your video streaming, you know, your, your data sharing, all of that stuff is, and even your, your sort of computing side, all of that's been ignored. And now I feel like a lot of those are getting picked up and just people are running with it. So you might've seen this project called Theta, which is a video streaming blockchain that's just got into the top 10 through some absurd they don't even have a working product i don't understand it but anyway that's in the top 10 Mm. along with a lot of other things that claim to do video streaming so maybe that's the macro trend that people are starting to think outside of the kind of typical smart contracts nfts and currencies and going okay well what replaces the conventional centralized internet there's a whole stack here let's you know throw money at those things i feel Mm. like that might be happening if you were imputing a greater degree of, of rationality and logic to the market, the crypto market, then I think it perhaps has. But it is, I would like to believe that. So, you know, in the, in the waves of mania after NFT comes um, some robust thinking about the different layers of the stack for the current web and how to re-architect them through a series of coin and then that the money gets reinvested in that in that way. Speaking of Theta, one of the early and big fans of Theta was the trading algorithm bot, Awesome Autopilot, which got, got in early to Theta and then stuck stuck around and it made an, it placed early bets quite successfully. My own experience with Awesome Autopilot was that my investment went down by 25%. Awesome, I think they're Estonian. They 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 you know they have a great product as a wallet and then they also have within that a feature that trades on your behalf and it, i think it can access a basket of up to 20 altcoins i'm going to say and choose how to allocate between them and it can allocate up to maybe 33 percent into bitcoin and then it, it just goes off and it has fun doesn't it uh, are you still in awesome autopilot i'm not i i i got back to my break even and i <laughs> I, in fact, I was up, what, 3% having sat through being down by like 40% in, in kind of relative Bitcoin terms with a very small amount, admittedly, because it was kind of testing it out. But I, I weathered the storm, got back to break evens and thought, ah, oh, enough of this. Like, is it really an algorithm or a bot? Is it just some person at the other end randomly picking things? I can do that. I'm very good at picking poor performing things. Like... I don't need an algorithm for that. Um, so I got out of it. I believe it might be time for a weekly segment. So it's time for shitcoin or fake coin. Shitcoin or fake coin. Do you want me to go first? Okay. Okay. So first one is called Elon's tweet coin. The short code is Elon, E-L-O-N. And this is, I mean, this is just great. It's a fan created meme coin. And its supply is tied to a smart contract that tracks Elon's tweets. So its current supply is somewhere around 13,800 tokens or coins, I guess, of Elon's tweet coin. So it's hugely inflationary. <laughs> if if he goes on a tweet spree, yeah, it would be. Complete no value coin, fan created, seems to be quite a recent creation on the back of Elon's doge type things, but nonetheless, very entertaining. My second one is 
502 bad gateway token. So shortcode Z502. So this one, have you ever heard of people getting really frustrated because in a, in a big market crash, things like Coinbase and Binance and all, they just, just spontaneously go down. Yeah, for sure. Um, and everyone's like, oh, it's collusion. What are they doing? Why don't they let me trade when it's like, you know, the market's crashing? So this is just, you know, one of those community tokens that pops up and it tries, it's trying to monetize that moment where you go to their site and then you get a 502. Right. How how error. did that work? Just something around community tokens and right. um, but like how finance, cash? Yeah. I guess, would pay you the tokens. Would they, though? Yeah, Binance, I guess Binance would issue you the tokens as a kind of... Um, but, but the website wasn't working to, at that point, so how would they do that? Um, it's unclear, but anyway, yeah. it mm. would happen, and then you'd have a record of, you know, it would be like compensation, I guess. No, for sure. Coin. Yeah, no, fake coin. And the Elon one is the shit coin. Uh, you're totally wrong. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so... If you go to z502token.com, you'll see that they describe this as a 502 bad gateway. Have you ever come across this phrase? Many of us in the crypto space have seen this phrase on more than one occasion. Right. No, I, get, mean... <laughs> I get that it's what you just said it was, but what? how will it work? The benefits of the token. Compensation, <laughs> empowerment, <laughs> value. Okay, I can um, see, you I can see where we are with this. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to do my one. I'm glad that you liked the idea of Elon's tweet coin. If someone hears this and wants to make it, I think it's a great idea. Only as inflationary as Elon's tweets. Are you ready for your, um, your shit coin or fake coin? Yes. Okay. So the first one is uh, hot chili. Okay, tell me more. That's C H I L L I. Okay. Any 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 other information other than the name? Yeah, no, so it's quite it's quite a good one. It's um a bit like what Bancor used to be. It's a, essentially a basket of the highest valued DeFi. The DeFi coins with the highest valued. It's it's pegged to a basket of those and right. it's hot chili. Okay. It's kind of like the Osum autopilot, but as a coin yeah so the the basket what is in the basket sort of cycles in and out depending on what the t what is in that t t sort of top quartile but um, right like an index fund yeah it's like an index but automated sounds terrible anyway, anyway. so that's hot chili um and then the next one is called uh rare pepe <laughs> and that's r p e p e is it like an NFT? I'm glad you mentioned NFT. Um, it's it's like NFTs of frogs. It's got some of that in it. And it's also a DAO. <laughs> Can I just say these are terrible? <laughs> um, I, so which is it? Hot chili or red pepe? I'm going to go with hot chili being a shit coin. And rare Pepe being a fake coin. Incorrect. Oh no! Hot chili was fake, and uh, rare Pepe is the shit coin. I, I and, just don't understand. Um, it's a you know the... NFT DAO meme. What? Do you know um, Pepe that there's been a documentary about the the frog? Yeah. Don't worry. The... That, that whole thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, before it got taken over by the far right, some other group took it over and produced a rare Pepe coin and created a DAO. And then towards the end of 2020, they sort of backed away from the NFT aspect of it and focused more on the DAO aspect of it. Anyway, the main thing to know is that it's real and it's a thing and it's um, valued at, I think it's nearly three cents. And then hot chili doesn't exist. I mean, that's just ridiculous, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna have to check because I just want to find out. You'll be pleased to know, five hundred two bad gateway token ranks four thousand four hundred and eleven on coin market cap, and um, has a fully diluted market cap of twenty five million dollars. Yeah, currently priced at zero point zero 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 two eight three one dollars. On that note, <laughs> I think we can wrap up. <laughs> it's been a good podcast thank you very much jonathan let's feature see you next week okay bye bye started during lockdown needed something to do they looked at each other they said hey i like talking to you and so far